Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 185, Building the House of Wessex. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Alex, Hannah, and Malcolm for contributing already. When we left off last time, we were taking a look at a problem facing Europe that nobody wanted to talk about. And this wasn't a problem like the plague of people mistaking tights for pants. In that situation, the only solution is to ignore it until it retreats back to the darkest recesses of fashion. But the Viking raids worked differently. Ignoring them only made them stronger. And to make matters worse, the European nobility had been hiring bands of Vikingers as mercenaries in their own personal squabbles, which brought Vikinger bands deeper into European territory and left the peasantry completely defenseless against them. It was a huge problem. But not every noble house was sitting on their hands, nor were they all pouring fuel on the fire. The West Saxons in particular had managed to get their act together just in time. And that incredible luck is why the House of Wessex remains such a big deal in British history, whereas Northumbria and Mercia are now mere footnotes, despite their earlier dominance. It wasn't because Wessex was spared the wrath of these Northmen. They just fared better. And when you look at what was going on in their government and contrast it with the other kingdoms, you can start to see why they were so successful. Starting with the reign of King Egbert and moving into the reign of the current King of Wessex, King Aethelwulf, the kingdom had begun to reorganize and modernize. They were adopting many of the concepts from the court of Charlemagne, learned by Egbert during his time in exile. They were moving away from the Anglo-Saxon concept of ruling through the consensus of powerful nobles, and were now implementing a more centralized form of leadership that was transferred solely through birth. Rule was only possible through a single line. Of course, we've seen other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms try this, with the most notable example being King Offa of Mercia, who had his son anointed. But no English ruler had shifted the way the state itself was organized in order to foster total control by a single monarch. No one until Egbert of Wessex. And now his son, King Aethelwulf, was following in his footsteps. His adoptions of these policies are revealed in how Aethelwulf handled the church. The family of Egbert needed money even more than they needed the support of the church. And they knew it. But they couldn't just abandon the church entirely because if they lost the support of the church, the whole thing could collapse. It was a tightrope. The king needed to be supremely powerful under the Carolingian model of monarchy. And the thing is that this power came not just from the Werod, but also from money. Consequently, Wessex could be generous with the church, but they couldn't be too generous because that money needed to go elsewhere. So, in aid of this, King Egbert and later King Aethelwulf had carefully maintained their family's position as lords of the wealthy Kentish monasteries. And those were the same wealthy monasteries that had once been in Mercian hands and were the subject of so many conflicts. And this wasn't about God, nor was it about tradition. It was about money. 
and there was a lot of money to be drawn from those houses, with some scholars estimating that a quarter of the total GDP of Kent was held by the religious houses. We're dealing with economics here, and it's why we see Egbert's line seizing estates that had once belonged to the monasteries, and behaving in ways that would have made Archbishop Wolfrid lose his mind, and refusing to return those lands even when the church kicked up a fuss. And they were doing this for a very simple reason. They had bigger fish to fry. God's house would have to wait. The house of Wessex needed money. They needed power to keep their nobles in line. And they could not afford to placate the archbishopric the way the Mercians had done. And it really does go well beyond money and greed. These issues that Aethelwulf was wrestling with and that his sons would later wrestle with were literally existential. The extreme inequality that racked the kingdoms of Western Europe during this period had turned society into a pressure cooker for everyone, not just the poor. Now, it's easy to see what inequality does to the poor. The more concentration that occurs, the less resources are available for everyone else. So, for kings to live as lavishly as Aethelwulf and others, the rest of the kingdom needed to be really poor. And that is obviously a problem for those who aren't at the top. But, as we've seen in Mercia and in Northumbria, that degree of concentration also leads to instability, because other dynasties were being incentivized to seek a bigger share of the wealth. So for the royals, these big existential questions of conquest had put them in a situation where the game was zero-sum. If they lost, they lost it all. One of the troubles, though, and we're going to see that continuing in this story as we go forward, is that it wasn't the case for the people who served the kings. For the peasants, whether or not they were ruled by the Mercians, Welsh, or even the Danes, probably wouldn't change their lives all that much. Even for the assorted nobles within Wessex, it wasn't the end of the world if there was a shift in power. So by taking a gimme-everything-it's-mine approach, the royalty were running the risk of their subjects feeling like they didn't have any ownership in the government. Meaning over which family ruled over a kingdom. And a lack of ownership can be pretty problematic. Now obviously, in this era, the peasants really weren't all that much of a concern for most monarchs. And I doubt that the kings of Wessex were saying, Oh God, does Unferth feel like he has a stake in our dynasty's survival? I mean, I just don't see that happening. But it was a very different issue when it came to the noble families. If those wealthy dynasties were feeling the pinch and they weren't fully buying into the structure, then the king and his family had problems. For example, if the lords didn't bring their men to the battlefield, or even worse, if they mustered for the other side, well, that's how entire dynasties get wiped out. And if the Anglo-Saxon nobility looked around, they must have realized that there was a non-zero chance that they might survive a regime change, and actually do better in the new one provided they backed the right horse. So from the perspective of Aethelwulf and his kin, this was incredibly high-stakes poker. And if it went bad, and the Danes came in and took over, they would likely meet the same end as the Romanovs. I mean, they weren't going to leave them alive. That would be an invitation to a future insurgency. So this inequality, and the possibility that the nobles might turn on you because of how everything is set up, well, that was a problem even for the kings. But... Those same kings were also trapped by their culture. It isn't like they could just turn on a dime and say, Oh, 
you know what? Wealth concentration, we're moving past that. And now, you know, we're going to work on a more egalitarian basis to make sure that everyone feels a degree of ownership. Culture doesn't work like that. Society-wide changes in culture take decades. In fact, in America, we've seen a big shift in how homosexuality is viewed, and it happened over the course of just about 50 years, which is just mind-boggling how fast that happened. So these things take time, and consequently, the kings couldn't just say, okay, we just noticed how bad this inequality is, let's just change. That's not how it works. All it would mean is that the other nobles who weren't on board with this shift would start concentrating wealth to their own benefit. So, while King Aethelwulf was probably all too aware of how high stakes this situation was, there was only so much he could do to manage the issue. The inequality was weakening his position. But the ironic thing is that probably the best way for him to maintain his hold was to deepen that inequality. But the question, of course, is... When you're putting off the issues in the short term, are you dooming your kids to a brutal death in the long? It's a nightmare scenario. And it looks like the way Wessex was trying to manage this problem was through a balancing act with the church. King Aethelwulf had learned from his father, and based upon the actions of Aethelwulf's sons, the situation with the church was something that the entire family was very aware of and also educated in. Because while they didn't bend to every demand made by the archbishopric, the entire line of Egbert was known for its gifts to the church. Alfred, in particular, who was Egbert's grandson, seems to have been carefully maintaining his revenues and expenditures so that he could strike the right balance between wealth conservation and generosity. And that really is the lesson to be drawn from this. The genius of the House of Wessex was their careful attention to balance in all things. As you might remember, other kingdoms had dealt with demanding bishops and handled it in different ways. For example, Northumbria and their nobility responded with force, and it caused massive rifts that led to papal attention. Conversely, Mercia bent to the Archbishopric of Canterbury so often that it became a persistent thorn in the side of the crown. But Wessex gave the church just enough to keep their complaints to a dull roar while doing the more important work of keeping their nobility happy and in line. And the way they handled their nobility is another area where we see the genius of the House of Wessex. We already spoke about how they organized their government to incentivize the nobility to squabble among themselves rather than to focus their ire upon the crown. But the House of Wessex, starting with Egbert, also arranged their inheritance in a manner that allowed them to amass an enormous amount of wealth and power. And let's be honest, if you can't or won't unravel the inequality that's causing the problems, you might as well ensure that your family is so absurdly wealthy and powerful that they just can't be challenged. So that's kind of what they did. And starting with Egbert, inheritance only went to the men of the line. Even Alfred was very much interested in keeping the family wealth consolidated and only allowed female relatives to have land for their lifetime. And upon their deaths, that land would revert back to the male line. Apparently, if you were a grandchild of Alfred's daughter, you were kind of on your own. Sorry, Elfwin. Now, this wasn't because they hated women. I mean, they might have, but that's not why they did it. It was a cold economic decision that was made due to the way that dynasties were drawn. Dynasties followed the male line. 
Which, to be honest, is a bit crazy pants, because you're always sure of who your mother is. But your father? That's always a bit more speculative. But whatever, that's how they did it. And because of that, the House of Wessex, starting with Egbert, began consolidating lands in the hands of the men of the family so that the lands wouldn't end up in someone else's dynasty. It further reinforced the power block of the House of Wessex. And through these actions, Egbert, Ethelwolf, and Alfred were all using their position and wealth to ensure that their sons would inherit the throne. And they were successful. Something else to keep in mind is that in addition to being brilliant bureaucrats, thanks in no small part to their ties with Francia, Egbert and his line were also masters of propaganda. We're going to get into this later on, especially with Alfred the Great, but the House of Wessex was brilliant at motivating their subjects to continue fighting against the Danes and in support of the royal dynasty, regardless of whether or not putting their lives in danger was really in the best interest of the lower classes. And ultimately, to understand what's happening, you really do need to understand the zero-sum situation that we're talking about. And we'll definitely continue talking about it as we go forward, but I wanted to make sure that you were thinking about it early on, because it drives many of the actions of these rulers. This was life-or-death stuff for them. And that's important context for the events that will follow in these waning days of Anglo-Saxon dominance. So, that brings us to the year 850, or 851. It's not clear exactly which year it was, nor is it clear what the order of these events were in, or if they actually all happened on the same year or spread out over a few years. Now, I'm going to relate the story in the order that the scribes wrote it down, and since they are all part of the same year in the Chronicle, I'm going with that. But we're trusting word-of-mouth tales that were told nearly 1,200 years ago, and then were later written down and then rewritten. So it's probably safer to think of these things as happening sometime in the early 850s, rather than all on definitely 850 or 851. And with that out of the way, the scribes tell us that on 850 or 851, there was a rapid series of battles in the south. First, we're told that an elderman named Churl raised his werod and fought against the quote, heathen men, end quote, meaning the Scandinavians, at a place called Wicca's Stronghold. Based upon the place name and the Elderman's name, scholars believe that this battle occurred in Devonshire, which would have placed it within the West Saxon sphere. We aren't told whether these heathens joined up with the Cornish the way they had done earlier, but nonetheless, this was a grim way to start the year. And tweet me if you caught that pun. Like the battle last week, we're once again told of how there was, quote, great slaughter, end quote. But at the end of the day, the men of Wessex were victorious. Now, this is only two to six years after the last West Saxon battle that involved a, quote, great slaughter, end quote. And the attacks were coming regularly. So we shouldn't assume that these were the only fights that were occurring. There were probably quite a lot that went unrecorded. And much of what we know about this period are from records that were written in order to motivate people to keep fighting for the House of Wessex. They were basically propaganda. So you might have noticed how we don't hear a lot about West Saxon losses. And I doubt that was a mistake. But we would be foolish to assume that it was simply because the West Saxons won every battle. These records were written with a very specific intent. And so there's a good chance there were other battles. 
and battles that didn't go necessarily very well for the West Saxons. And we should be wondering how strained the warbands of Wessex were becoming under these relentless attacks from the Northmen. Meanwhile, trouble was brewing in the West, because we're also told that on that same year, King Aethelstan of Kent, he was King Aethelwulf of Wessex's son, Remember that the West Saxon kings had begun using Kent as a sort of training kingdom for the heir apparent. Well, King Aethelstan of Kent, along with Aethelhera, who were told was his dukes, fought an enormous army of raiders off the coast of Kent, near Sandwich. Now, a couple things about this. First, the scribe's use of the Roman word dukes is pretty interesting. A dukes isn't necessarily the same as an ealdorman or a thane. In Roman times, a dukes was essentially a general, and I can't help but wonder if this indicates that Aethel Harrow was King Aethelstan's primary battle commander. My guess is that he probably was. The other thing that's interesting here is that this is the first recorded naval battle in English history. That's no small matter. You know how I've been repeatedly banging this drum about how important it is to have a Coast Guard, and virtually ending every episode with... Why isn't anyone building a Coast Guard? Well, while Francia was torn by infighting, the West Saxons were doing exactly that. And it turns out that it was really effective. We aren't told of exact numbers of forces, but the West Saxon fleet must have been sizable, because not only did King Aethelstan and his dukes put the Scandinavian raiders to flight, but they also captured nine of their ships. This was a complete and utter rout. The power of England's fleet, what would become known as her wooden wall, was already making itself known nearly 1,200 years ago. However, the line in the chronicle that follows that entry suggests that this wasn't a total victory. It states, quote, And for the first time, the heathen men stayed over the winter, end quote. Other records indicate that the location that they wintered at was Thanet, which is right there, butting up against Sandwich Bay. So it sounds like the victory secured by King Aethelstan and his dukes was to drive off the fleet, perhaps a supporting fleet. But the Scandinavians who had already landed had fortified themselves in Kent and weren't budging. I find this highly plausible, since these attacks were rapidly increasing in scale to an absurd degree. I mean, at the same time these Northmen decided to camp in Kent, another fleet of Scandinavians had taken the mouth of the Seine in Francia, and they wintered there. These armies were enormous, and while King Aethelstan was successful on the sea, driving off a fleet was probably a very different experience from trying to storm a Viking or stronghold, and would probably require different tactics and possibly even different warriors entirely. So after driving off the boats, the Anglo-Saxons might have just left the Vikingers to their business and just patrolled around to make sure they didn't march anywhere. And the reason why I suspect that is because it makes sound tactical sense. If you have a large number of Vikingers with no avenue of retreat, and they're probably either boarded up in a monastery or other defensible location, well, trying to take that territory by siege could cost you a lot of men. Men that you couldn't afford to lose, considering that these armies were arriving with increasing frequency and in ever greater numbers. Kent and Wessex just were not organized to handle that. 
Their troops, as you know, were small special forces units. And they were also members of the nobility. If a siege of a stronghold turned out to be a bloodbath, that would be a nightmare not just for the West Saxon military strength, but also for the line of Egbert, because it could lead to a coup, since rival dynasties aren't exactly going to be too pleased with such a big loss of their own kids. So yeah, I suspect that the Vikinger army was allowed to retreat to Thanet and winter there, because it was simply too dangerous to do anything else. Now these events alone would make for a very active year, but the records continue. We're told that another fleet of 350 ships arrived at the mouth of the Thames. And I assume it was a different fleet than the one that just hit a little to the south at Sandwich, but it's possible it could have been the same one. Like I said, we don't know for sure what order these events occurred in. So yeah, 350 ships. So depending on the size of the crews, we're looking at a Vikinger army that numbers between 10 and 20,000 warriors. But we should also keep in mind that this is an ancient written record, and we can't really trust the numbers to be absolutely correct. But at the very least, we're probably looking at an army that numbers in the thousands. And no matter what the actual numbers were, we are looking at a very big fleet. I mean, if we trust the chroniclers, we're talking about a fleet that's about three times the size of the fleet that besieged Paris. It would have been so large that it could be seen on the horizon. The Anglo-Saxons would have probably seen it coming. And as it closed in on the Thames, it would have been all too clear that their destination was somewhere in southern Britain. And then they beached and stormed Canterbury. Canterbury would have been an enticing target for Vikingers. It was a wealthy trading town, so there was undoubtedly a great deal of loot and slaves to be seized there. But it was also a former Roman city from the Romano-British period. It was fortified, and as we spoke about in earlier episodes, the Anglo-Saxons were beginning to move back within the old walls of those old fortified towns. In fact, the Bury part of Canterbury is an Old English suffix, and it indicates that it was a fortified settlement. So there's a good chance that the walls were being refortified in anticipation of a raid, and that the people in the surrounding area probably rushed within the town seeking shelter. But the citizens who sought safety within the walls may have discovered too late that they were actually trapped there. Because while those walls could provide a degree of protection, the fact that we're told the Scandinavians stormed the town, rather than just looting the surrounding area, suggests that they had enough men to take the walls, and then take everything and everyone hiding within. I don't know how bad it was, how many were killed or enslaved, but thousands of warriors can do a tremendous amount of damage. It must have been a nightmare. And then, the Scandinavians returned to their ships, and continued sailing up the Thames, probably breaking bridges and other defensive structures as they advanced. I mean, with such a large force, they could afford to send men ashore to deal with any problems. But this would have also slowed their advance, giving time for messengers to be sent. Given the size of the fleet, messengers were probably already being sent to the various courts in southern Britain long before they even reached Canterbury. But the possibility of an organized defense on the part of the Anglo-Saxons apparently didn't worry the Scandinavians all that much, because they continued their voyage upriver. 
and they reached London. But the Anglo-Saxon messengers had done their job well. King Bjartwolf of Mercia was already in place, and he was accompanied by the Mercian army. However, this wasn't the Mercia from the days of King Offa. They had weakened substantially, and due to the murder that we talked about last week, where a rival scion and heir to the throne was killed by King Bjartwolf's own son, my guess is that the army that accompanied the king wasn't at full strength, and he was probably lacking some key nobles and werods. And so, when the Scandinavian warriors disembarked from the reported 350 ships, the king probably realized how terribly outclassed he was. And it wasn't long before Bjortwolf and his entire army was put to flight. London was defenseless. And once again, those poor civilians who had taken shelter within the walls of the nearby Roman city of London probably discovered that they had entered a trap. It's hard to even wrap my head around what they must have experienced. These were real people, just like you and me. And they'd heard tales of Vikingers. They had likely heard of how even holy sites like Lindisfarne had been sacked mercilessly, with even monks getting raped and murdered. And I'm sure they heard horror stories of the Viking slave traders, and the fate that awaited them if they were lucky enough to survive the attack. And now, seeing their king and his entire army fleeing the field of battle, they knew what awaited them. And there was nothing they could do to stop it. They weren't warriors. They were traders, craftsmen, parents, brothers, sisters. And these walls might slow the Vikinger army down. But what good would that do? All the walls could do at this point is give you time to contemplate what was going to happen next. The horror of this is unimaginable. And we don't know how many were killed or enslaved when the Vikinger fleet sacked its second town that season but it must have been substantial. And those that escaped, escaped only with their lives. The crews would have carried off anything of value and possibly burned the rest. The Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were now experiencing what the Franks had endured only a few years earlier. And the Vikinger army was not done. With London looted and the plunder loaded onto their ships, we're told that the Northmen, who were now on foot, marched south and into the kingdom of Wessex. I'm not sure where they were headed, if they were just looking to loot a few wealthy monasteries in Surrey and western Kent, or if they were planning on making a longer march to the wealthy West Saxon towns. What I do know is that they passed Kingston-upon-Thames, the site where the kings of Wessex were crowned. If they looted that too, we don't know, because it wasn't recorded. Given the tone that the Chronicles wanted to strike, though, my guess is that any looting of the ancient seat of the West Saxon kings would have been scrubbed. It would just be too humiliating for the line of Egbert. Whatever happened, we know that they continued moving southwest. And at Oakfield, they stopped. A large army had amassed against them. Throughout all of this time, messengers weren't just being sent to the Mercian court. They had also been sent out to Wessex and Kent. And King Athelstan of Kent, likely enraged that the jewel of his kingdom, Canterbury, had been sacked, had raised his war bands. And he wasn't alone. 
His father, King Aethelwulf of Wessex, was present, and he brought his war bands. The unity and stability of Wessex was in full display at Oakfield. Unlike the fractured Mercian forces, who were easily routed and were quite possibly looking for a reason to leave their rivals to a grisly fate, Wessex was consolidated under one dynasty. The nobles might hate each other, but they were all looking to gain the favor of the king. I imagine that any Ealdorman that could march to join the king would have, and would have brought the full complement of his warriors. A Vikinger fleet that numbers in the hundreds and carries thousands of warriors, maybe tens of thousands of warriors, is a terrifying challenge. But the House of Wessex appears to have brought the combined warbands of most, if not all, of the shires of both Kent and Wessex. And we aren't talking about conscripts here. We aren't talking about men who had never seen a battle. We aren't even talking about veterans of one or two battles. We're talking about armies of men who had spent their entire lives training to do one thing and one thing only. Kill. They were the veterans of countless battles, big and small. And in Oakfield, in 850 or 851, these two forces, some of the biggest of their time and full of experienced battle-hardened warriors, met. It's doubtful that anything like this had happened in Britain for centuries, probably not since the days of Rome. And as usual, we aren't told of the tactics. We aren't told if they moved in a wedge or they just presented a straight shield wall. We aren't told if the West Saxons rushed the field or if they held a defensive position. We're told very little. But I imagine that the hills must have looked like they were on fire with that many members of the Werod. They would have been carrying weapons and arms that had been in their families for as long as anyone could remember. Weapons that still carried names and stories reaching back to the early days, when they struggled to seize these same lands from the Britons. Many great battles had been fought since then. And I'm sure that most of the men of the Werod and the Hearthwerod could recite tales from memory of great warriors of days past. And these legends were actual men, who fought in the same war bands that these warriors in the field were now serving. They were men who might have been these warriors' ancestors, and may have even carried the same blades that were now in the hands of the men who filled the ranks of the West Saxon war bands. These legends were the great warriors of days past, and their deeds were clear for all to see. Many had died so that their families could hold these lands so that their families could rule these lands. And if Kings Aethelwulf and Aethelstan were half the leaders that were told they were, they would have reminded their men of this great history and tell them that after all of the bloodshed, after all of the sacrifice, they were not going to abandon their lands lightly. They couldn't. To do so would shame their ancestors, and the Anglo-Saxon culture of honor would not allow that. And then, someone gave the order to advance. And some of the most experienced, well-equipped warriors, in numbers that would have been unimaginable only a mere handful of years earlier, met in battle. In the end, all the Chronicle tells us is that the combined West Saxon and Kentish army, quote, 
made the greatest slaughter of a heathen raiding army that we have heard tell of up to this present day, and there took the victory. End quote. The Scandinavian fleet, a monstrous fleet that had numbered in the hundreds and had sacked Canterbury and London, was now crushed. Where the Mercians had failed, the West Saxons succeeded with incredible efficacy. This was an event that would have reverberated throughout the region. The Anglo-Saxons had taken a stand and held. And it seems that Mercia recognized their weakened position because at some point around here, we also start seeing coins that had King Bertwulf of Mercia on one side and King Aethelwulf of Wessex on the other. The West Saxon sphere of influence was growing. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And why don't you join me on Twitter? We're at British Podcast. And you can join us on all the other social media channels. You can find links to all of them at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>